Uh, and if you'd open your Bible to Acts chapter 17, we're going to be uh, reading from there this morning in, in just a few minutes. Um, we're going we're gonna to pray and ask God to bless uh, our time in His Word. Uh, but I want to I lift up a friend of mine and a people group, as we so often do. We pray for the unreached peoples of the world. Um, my, my pastor, who I met in 1997 uh, and was, was blessed to sit under his teaching until 2005, I, we, uh, Brian and Matt and I went out to his church um, on Friday night for a worship conference, we drove back, we got home late last night, and uh, just good to get filled up with good information, good solid teaching on worship. And um, their worship leader, uh, his name is Chris Clinch, he's going to come and, and, and lead worship and speak to us at some point. Um, Chris believes the truth that missions exists because worship doesn't. Uh, Missions to the nations exist because God is seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and truth. And so, an amazing thing, the worship leader of a, of a large, successful church is leaving his life, uh, taking two or three other families from the church, and he's going to go to work among uh, the Bengali people of India to preach and to proclaim the gospel there and to, to, to do uh, that work. Uh, so I want to pray for those people before he gets there. I, I firmly believe that God is at work and doing something long before we arrive um, w to fix things. Uh, God is there. God is working ahead uh, and, 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 and doing. And so we just want to lift up the Bengal people um, and, and pray. Uh, my pastor, who has sat right about where Trey and Susan are and, and worshipped with us twice now, was very insistent uh, that he's been here twice as a guest. He's never been invited to preach. Um, I told him that was on purpose. He's a bit of a mess. Um, but I love him in Christ. He's a great guy. Uh, he will come and preach, and Chris is going to come and, and speak to us and, uh, uh, at some point. So we're going to pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to dig into your word in just a moment. But Lord, we, we thank you that that word creates desire, Lord. It calls people to faith. It, um, it, it, it creates belief. And I thank you for my, my brother in Christ, Chris, our brother in Christ, who uh, on hearing your word and on worshiping with your people, believes that he is called to go and to call out worshipers among the Bengal people of India. Lord, we thank you for this one and a quarter million people. Uh, though they believe Islam and have no life in them because of it, we believe that you have set apart some of them and are calling them to faith in you, Lord. And so I pray that you would fuel the clinches, Lord, Monica and Chris on their journey, that they might take the gospel to these people. Lord, I pray that you would protect them from the devil. I pray that you would prepare them with the training that they need. I pray that you would uh, continue to uh, bring them the support that they need to go. But we pray for success on mission as they go. Lord, we thank you for these people. We pray that you'd make your name great among them. Lord, thank you for your word. We, we pray that as, as we hear your word, that it would not just land on us as positive truths, 
to be considered, but that we would be provoked. Lord, that what we hear would, would stir us in our spirit, that it would penetrate to the core, and that, that it would demand an emotional response. And we pray that we would be moved by what we hear, Lord. It is, it is easy to be in consumer mode, as, as we have become accustomed to sitting in front of televisions and computer screens and, and, and uh, browsing on our mobile phones. So often we are in consumption mode, just absorbing we pray that we would not be like the people of Athens who delighted in always hearing something new, but that we would be moved to respond because you've called us to respond by your grace. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would be cut to the core by the power of your Spirit and that they would put their faith and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, we live a lot of life on autopilot. Have you noticed that? Um, I, I put my kids in the car this morning, and I turned the car key, and uh, as I was uh, balancing my, my cup of coffee uh, on the way here, you know, because you've got to be careful that coffee doesn't splash out of that mug. I just don't like travel mugs. I've come to the conclusion. They're just not, I don't know. It's hard. You, you open the travel mug and sometimes you put it, you tip it to what seems like an extreme angle and you're genuinely paranoid that like blazing hot coffee is going to land on your face and nothing's coming out. It's like I cannot increase the angle anymore. I will get burned. Uh, a regular mug, it's like you see the liquid and you know when it's coming. Uh, but then you drive down Fitzwater, you hit that bump and it's all over you and there go your nice clean khaki pants. In any case, um, we, it's, it's so easy. I, I realize this. I'd planned to say this, but it, it happened this morning. I got the kids in the car, and I'm talking to, to my oldest. He's, he's right next to me, and we're talking about this and that and the other thing. And, and all of a sudden, I'm just here. I'm, I'm at church, and I'm getting out of the car. And I'm like, I know I got here. I know what I did. I can, I can kind of remember turning left and right and all that, but it's just autopilot. Because honestly, once you pass your driving test, driving's kind of easy, isn't it? You can, you, can, you can not remember you're doing it. It's, it's, it's that simple. And yet still, like, turn all your signals and drive the speed limit and do all that. You just, good habits, right? It, life on autopilot. But there are times, right, when you're provoked. Uh, I remember September 22nd, 1999, where Nancy called me and said, I think I'm going into labor. And I was at work, and I was like, I have to leave. And it was like, I grab my keys, like, da-da, you know, and I get in the car, and it's like, you know, and put the car in gear, and, and I'm like, I'm driving, I'm aware of everything. Like, my senses are overloaded, and I've got to get home, I'm on this mission. Like, it probably took me just the same amount of time, although I, I do believe that because of superior driving skill and technique, that I made it home very quickly to get her to the hospital for like 16 hours of labor, which would then move into a C-section. Um, being provoked shakes us out of autopilot. Uh, and that leads us to Acts chapter 17, where uh, Paul is in Athens on what seems like a tourist visa at first, but he is shaken by what he sees. Uh, and, and out of the depth of his being, 
the gospel erupts. We're going we're gonna to see that in this passage. Uh, let's read Acts chapter 17. Starting in verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, who he left behind in, in Thessalonica, while he was waiting for them at Athens, they want to connect up, and then they're going to continue their missionary journey. His spirit was provoked within him. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's human spirit, which is which is provoked and assaulted by, by what's going on. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Do you see that? Paul, Paul was provoked by what was going on, and so he didn't just tune out or uh, resign to the fact that they were going to be judged by God, but instead he reasoned in the marketplace. He went out into the business world where people were going back and forth, and, and he shared the gospel there, and he also went to where the religious people were and shared the gospel there. And he draws attention, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are two rival groups of belief. Maybe it would be like the, the biology professors and the hippies is kind of a, a good way. If we, We've still got hippies. They just go by different names today. Uh, beatniks or hipsters or whatever you call them. Uh, the, these, these are philosophers. They began to converse with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. If you, if you read that in Greek, it, it reads he was preaching Jesus and Anastasia. And some scholars think that, that they thought that he was preaching uh, some foreign king divinity and his consort, his wife, resurrection. That, that, that they, they don't understand the gospel, they don't know the story, and so they're, they're seeing this as, as possible multiple beings, um, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to dwell on the face of all the earth, having to determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is here quoting their poets and, uh, and songwriters to them, kind of like you reaching out and quoting some lyrics off the radio to a friend. 
Being then, we'll talk about that later, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, again, he's resorting to kind of religious philosophy language. He's, he's saying, okay, because we're God's children, we ought not to think that the God of the universe is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Paul's there. He's in the middle of his speech. He's going through his sermon. He's sharing with them. And when he mentions the resurrection, outrage erupts from some of them. They just start shouting him down. They're, they're making fun of him. They're, they're, they're mocking him. And others are interested, and they say, uh, it says, we will hear you again about this. We, we want to know more. Well, let's, let's set up a time or an appointment in the future, and you can come back and, and continue to teach us. But you notice the implication of the way that they say, so you, we will hear you again about this. It says, Paul went out from their midst. They're like, we're done talking today. Thank you for, for sharing. Thank you for bringing that word. And they send him out. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite. He's in the Areopagus. This guy named an Areopagite believes. This is somebody who like grew up probably within the shadow of this place. He's like a professional attender there. He believes and leaves the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Wow, what do we learn from this? Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, a lot of good stuff. So much so that um, I actually only want to talk about a few verses, and then next week we're going to come back, and I'm going to argue that, that in Paul's preaching of the gospel, he actually does not get to the gospel at all, but he builds the foundation on which the gospel is to be laid before he's interrupted. We've, we've seen the gospel over and over in Acts, and I think what Luke is doing here is, is, is displaying uh, the, the fact that, that Paul needs to lay a foundation the further away from the Jewish mindset he gets. He needs to call people back to, to where they've come from. And, and I think we'll find some great help for sharing the gospel with, with people who are like, I don't, I don't have anything in common. I don't believe anything that you believe. There's a, there's a lot of, of essential good help here. We're not even going to get to that today. I just want to focus on, on Paul's focus, on Paul's thinking, because I really, truly do believe that, that so many of us as Christians, we're suffering from the diseases of the rich. We're suffering from extreme boredom in our culture. We're suffering from extreme consumerism. Because we have so much, because we have so little real need, but what we, all, what we have is consumer need. We need, a, we need a better, more reliable car. We need a bigger, more spacious house. We need a more convenient or functional wardrobe, right? We, we've already got a closet full of stuff, but we need better, newer, right? We need to attain higher uh, 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 adrenaline-like experiences. We need, to, we need to pursue different vacations, more fulfilling this or that. What happens is that the essential basic truths of the gospel 
no longer wow us. Because, quite honestly, the animatronic, computer-generated dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are much more interesting. Or whatever movie, what is that movie that's out about the big giant robots that fight the aliens? What is it? South Pacific. That's a musical. It's going to wash that man right out of my hair. Pacific Rim, yes, very good. Um, yeah, you know, we, we're like, we, which was also probably very good. South Pacific, it's a classic. Um, yeah, uh, we, we're so into like the latest next thing. We are this culture. We need to be provoked to action. My goal this morning is to dig a, a little deep in indictment of this culture and hopefully offend you enough that you'll do what we all need to do, and that's repent. All Christians are repentant sinners. And to come to Christ in worship is to, to cast aside all illusions of righteousness and to say, Jesus, you're my source and supply. That's what we were just singing. You are all my righteousness, and, and I need to continually reorient myself around you and to, to live the way that you're calling. Look at, look at what, what Paul was doing here. It says Paul was waiting for them at Athens, okay? Paul was in Athens, in the city. He was passing time. He had a few days off. He had no plans for ministry or mission here. He was, he was just waiting, perhaps like many of us are, right? We're waiting for all kinds of things. We're waiting for school to start, many parents. Some of us are waiting for payday, right? We're, we're waiting for our next vacation. We're, we're, we may be waiting to get married, waiting to get engaged, waiting for news about a new job, or, or waiting until the situation that we're in works itself out so we can take steps forward. We're, we're waiting. What are we doing while we wait? Paul saw. He was watching and observing the city. Last night, um, we piled into the car, and we headed home from Pittsburgh. We're headed back here. And uh, in, in the midst of all the talking and, and, and being in the car with Matt and Brian was kind of like, uh, it was a bit of an 80 nightmare, you know. I, I, th I think I counted like seven or eight times. I'm like, let me tell this story. And I started to share something over and over, and it was like, where do you want to eat? And what do you want to do? Blah, 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 blah. Like just chatter. I contributed significantly to some of it. Um, we, I think we had three GPSs going at once at one point while we were trying to find dinner. Um, that's just an indicator of the kind of culture we live in. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the road uh, for signs of who we are as a people on, on the way back. And the first thing I notice is that there's a big banner on the side of a Napa Auto Parts building that says, we are open on Sunday, right? You know, uh, it's, it's like, we're, we're open to meet your needs constantly. You need to fix that car. There are, there are blinking signs and lit signs broadcasting food, car upgrades, homes for sale. We passed bumper stickers of every imaginable political affiliation, religious persuasion. Everybody's uh, identifying themselves as something, planning or, or, or offering some means of salvation for, for us 
and, and, and the literature's out there. Uh, there are flags hung up on, on the sides of the mountains. I saw the don't tread on me sign, you know, uh, on the back of a car, and I saw a whole bunch of, uh, of Obama stickers. So it's like, we need a new president, we need to support this president. It's all out there, everywhere. Um, politics, investments, banks, vacations, eat this, buy this, you need this. Paul looked at Athens and he saw a city full of idols. The scholars who discuss this passage, they say that Athens was like a forest of idols. They were everywhere. They were on every street corner. There were, there were religious objects of worship everywhere. So much so that, that it says later in this passage that they put up certain altars just to make sure they hadn't missed anyone. They called them altars to unknown gods. There's a possible reason for that. We'll talk about that maybe next week. It was a sea of idolatry. One scholar says that you could probably walk from one end to the other end of Athens, stepping on idols. You could walk from one end of the city to the other without putting your foot on the ground. Paul was provoked by the human condition. This is the truth, brothers and sisters. We are idolaters by nature. Human beings worship idols. John Calvin says the heart is an idol factory. It produces and searches for things to worship. We worship ourselves. And you may say, but I don't really like myself. Trust me, you like yourself. What did you eat for breakfast this morning? Right? You know, unless you ate like dirt and rocks and sharp things, you like yourself. Right? You poured yourself a bowl of sugar-frosted uh, uh, chocolate bombs or whatever, you know. That's because you love you and you, you want to have a, a, a taste explosion when you sit down to eat. Because you love you. We idolize ourselves. We idolize our family. We idolize what other people think of us. And so we push our children to attain or we buy bigger, fancier cars. We, we, we idolize our spouses. And so we, we try to give them these uh, experiences that will show them that we're totally devoted to them as we take them on this vacation or that vacation. We, we idolize different political figures or sports figures and we, we wear their names on our, on our jerseys and on our backs and we, we connect with them and we pick fights with people who wear different jerseys when we're out in, in Steeler country. You know, like that's what we do. We're idolaters. We find a thousand things to worship except the God who is and who has revealed himself to us. What Paul sees is inconsistent with what he knows to be true internally. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We all know it. It's lurking in the corner of our mind, just outside the vision of our eye. We're, we're holding the, the truth behind us like this, suppressing it, and, and it's, it's, it's knocking at our hearts saying, I am here and you cannot escape from me. The Bible says what can be known about God is, is plain to us because God has shown it to us. 
God's invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature has been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that are around us. And so Romans 1.20 says we're without excuse. Although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what does God do when we, when we swap his glory and we worship something else like a car or a sports team or physical perfection or a perfect family or a well-arranged uh, portfolio for retirement or the victory of our political party or winning arguments or attaining degrees or getting jobs? What, what does God do to humanity when we swap the glory of honoring and worshiping him as he is and as he ought to be worshiped. Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You look at the frustration and the paranoia and the emptiness and the loneliness and the brokenness and indebtedness and fracturedness of our culture. It's because God has said, I will give you exactly what you want. And we've dug to the bottom of the supersized fries and you know what we found? Nothing. Because we think that we'll be full if we eat a whole bag of cheese curls. But even though we're stuffed, we're still hungry. And even when our political party wins, the world doesn't get any better. As Carl Truman says, the, the problem with elections is that the government manages to get in every single time. We finally strike up that relationship with that girl or guy and we found out, you know what? This is good, but it doesn't complete me because they're broken too or we attain that degree, or we get that job and we find, yes, I've arrived, but I'm not satisfied. There needs to be something more. God created us to be in a relationship with him, and we are like the moon without the earth, without him at the center. We are purposeless. God is calling for people to worship him. This is not the, the mindless surrender of all intellectual and spiritual life to, to just sit in church. It is to reorient the whole of our lives and our goals and our dreams around his goals and dreams and desires and to worship him. So often, we in America are like the Athenians. We think that because we are God's offspring, because he created us and he released us into the world, we think that he's like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And you may say, no, that's not me. But then think about the way that we pursue religious experience. We want to go to a church where the preaching connects with us, right? We want to have significant emotional experiences during worship. Right? We, we want a certain set of, of ministries there to serve us. We want to make sure that, that everything 
uh, uh, suits us. And we, we fail to see that so often we approach it with a consumeristic lifestyle. What do I get out of this? Rather than how is my life transformed and changed by the reality of what I'm hearing? When we hear the gospel on a weekly basis and we hear the truth proclaimed, it ought to provoke us to action. What do the Athenians do? They hear Paul's word and they're like, that's stupid. Or they're like, we might be interested in hearing more. We'll let you know. Right? Man, I'll tell you, I was on vacation. We went to this place called Camp of the Woods where you go, and uh, they've got a speaker. Um, we had the, the pastor of Moody Church. Awesome, awesome pastor. Brilliant speaker. You know, I'm sitting there like I am a slug in the world of preaching because this guy is, like, enormous. And then I'm like, idolatry. I'm preaching on that when I get back, right? Um, but, but then they had a, a history prof from a, from a well-known seminary there giving a seminar, and so you're, like, soaking up learning and you know what I found myself doing the first two days until I let my guard down? I was like, I wouldn't have used that illustration. Yeah, that joke was funny. I'm going to write that down and tell it back at harvest. Yeah, that's funny. You know, that's good. That'll get him to laugh. And I'm like picking apart everything this guy's saying. And I'm like, I am, I am like the little kid who you put dinner in front of, and he's like, he peels the bun off, and he takes the tomato off, and he throws the pickle here, and, and he's like, I'm not eating this consuming. Brothers and sisters, it's who we are as Americans. Whether you like it or not, in this culture, we have been built and we have grown up breathing the air of consumerism. We are professional pursuers of appetite. Because, you know, you don't really have to make dinner right? You can go and get fast food that's not good for you, or you can go and get fast food that is good for you. Because companies have figured out that there are markets for all these different things, and so you can go and get a burger that has no meat in it, right? Or you can get a burger that's got real meat in it that's more expensive, or you can get a vegetarian thing that's supposed to be like a burger that has who knows what in it, right? Which is probably supposed to be really good for you, but it's all designed for the same purpose, to serve you, because you've got money and, and you are a consumer. And, and so often what happens is we fall into the trap of thinking that's what our lives are supposed to be like and our religious experience gets thrown in there, right? Like in those old Reese's, Pieces, uh, Reese's peanut butter commercials where it's like, you got your peanut butter in my chocolate. You know, we need to be careful that our religion, that our worship of God does not fall into our consumeristic worldview. Now, does that mean that the worship team ought not try to do a good job at the songs that they pick and pick right theology? Should, should the preacher, when he gets up, you know, should he just be like, well, you know, if you're not listening, then you're consumers and not judging you and all that? No, no. Everybody ought to try to do a, a good job in what they do and produce something worth listening to, worth interacting with. But, but what, what we need to be aware of, it's always lurking there. We need to be aware that, that we not fall into the trap of saying, I'm spiritual, I worship God and being consumers. We need to orient ourselves around the idea that there is a God who is there, 
and that he demands that we worship him in the way that we ought to because he deserves to be worshipped in a particular way because he is holy. He gave us life. He gave us breath and being and he gave us a moral capacity and an intellect and he calls us to choose and to discern and to raise our children and to share with others and to and to minister to them and love them and then he calls us to do those things and so often we're like yeah you know i'll get to that someday once i get all this organized overwhelmed with your life Call 1-800 and we'll come in and organize it for you. We just, we think so often that we come to have an experience when the truth is God is speaking in his word and we're called to respond to him in truth. Paul is provoked by this. He sees that they're religious but they have no real connection with God. Now, I don't think that's the case this morning. But I think it is the danger. Because we move in and out of consumerism, don't we? We, we settle and we get about our work and then we're like, you know, like, I feel like something sweet. You know, and then we go out and we select from the whole host of things that have been designed to appeal to our sweet tooth. And we can do that. We can be like, I want to be inspired this morning. We walk into church and it doesn't happen. And we check out. I want to be convicted. I want to be taught. I want to be wowed. I want, I want, I want the pastor to say something. I want my skin to tingle because I've never heard that before. And be like, oh, that's neat. Right? We, we, we do that, and it's unconscious. It's the danger. I don't think it's the case with Harvest Baptist Church, but I think it's a danger. Let me tell you, there, there are people who visit our church, and if you're a visitor here this morning, we're glad that you're here. I'm excited that you're here. I am. And, and, but let me just say this. There are people who they come here, and what they want is an experience, and they don't come back because they didn't hear what they came to church for right? They've not gone to church in forever, and they show up this morning because they want a word from God, and what they hear is repent and believe in the gospel, and they're like, that's not true, and they walk off. We, we can't feel bad about that. We can love people, we can welcome them into our, our lives, but if what they're looking for is, is, is something other than what's coming forth in the gospel from the word, we can't, we can't do anything about that. God is, and he demands to be worshipped in a particular way. Paul feels this. He, he is provoked by this, and he's moved, and he's moved emotionally. What moves Paul? What moves him and motivates him is jealousy. He is jealous for God. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You might be like, that's weird. Jealousy's bad, and it shows up there twice in the Bible. Well, let's just prove that this is true. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God names himself jealous. He says, one of the many names by which I go by 
Have you noticed the more important someone is in the world, the more titles and names they've got? Uh, God is a jealous God. He calls that his, his name, one of his many titles. Is it okay for God to be jealous and for him to ban us from being jealous? I think the question of whether jealousy is right or wrong depends on whether the object of our jealousy has a right to be there or not, right? If, if I'm like, there was a lot of feedback, good positive feedback while I was gone, you know, John, John preached two good messages and, you know, people were like, that was really good. And I'm like, there will be no other good preachers in this church, <laughs> right? Because I demand to be respected and well thought of. I have no right to do that, right? Because what, what is God seeking? He's seeking proclaimers, those who are out there speaking and teaching. And whether I'm here or not, the people need to be fed. And so I have no right to be jealous. But within my relationship with my wife, if another man comes around and notices the way that God create her, created her and says, Thou art foxy, I have every right to be jealous because he has no right to be there. And I'm like, I will exert every bit of spiritual and physical power which is in me to drive you away. Because I am jealous for her affection with a godly affection and no one has a right to be there. Because we made vows. God is a jealous God. Why? Isaiah chapter 43 verse 11, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. When you think I will finally be satisfied, let me just confess my junk here, right? When I get the iPod Nano, the iPod Touch, the iPhone, the iPad, the MacBook Pro, right? All things which I have at some point deceived myself that they would make my life more organized. Why do we have to keep updating all these apps and things constantly? You know, it's like it's just added confusion. When we, when we say, I will finally be satisfied when I get whatever, when I complete that 5K, when I go on vacation, when I get my degree, when my husband or wife finally realizes this or that truth, we set up an idol. And God says, that has no right to be there at all. Because only he deserves to be there. And he is jealous for the top spot in each and every one of our affections. And Paul sees this entire city going astray, this entire people, this entire culture, and he says, this should not be. And he is moved with a jealousy for God, a godly zeal that motivates him to open his mouth and speak. Paul's formal theology, what he believes about God, leads him to action, to response. He's moved, and he speaks. Psalm 47, verse 1 says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. What could replace the God of the universe? And yet, we are so easily satisfied with computer games, or books, or chemicals, or clubs, or sports, or any billion things that we allow to interfere with our relationship with God. 
Sing praises to God. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Does does God seem to want our worship? Did you hear the word sing a lot there? He wants us to worship him, not just in song, but by giving honor and recognition to the glory which he is due. The truth is that God is infinitely satisfying, but we are broken and not able or willing to be satisfied. And so what does Paul do when he sees this culture that's broken, that refuses to honor God? They, they suppress the truth about him in unrighteousness. They hold it out of view and they pursue this idol and that idol and this thing and that thing. He is moved to speak and he speaks the gospel. What Paul does, which we need to do, we need each other to patrol one another. And then we need to look out into our culture. We need to speak the gospel, not that God is grouchy about the fact that we're all ignoring him, but about the fact that he is gracious and kind and loving. And though we have refused to eat what he's put on the table and we've trashed his house and we've beaten up our brothers and sisters and taken their stuff and abused him over and over and over again, he is still kind and loving toward us. He is still gracious. He holds out his hands and says, I will still love you I'll adopt you, I'll draw you into my family, I'll make you righteous, and you can serve me, and you can be part of what I'm doing to change the world. The danger is that as consumers, we're like, I've heard that before. That's not interesting. I've heard that. We need to be moved out of our consumerism. We need to be shaken up and catch a holy vision for something different. So Paul preaches to the Athenians, calls them to change their mindset and to repent, to serve the Lord, to be still and to know that he's God. God is seeking worshipers. Now, I just want to draw this to a close. I'm going to sum up and I'm going to stop. Next week, we're going to look at Paul preach the bad news, okay? There's about five points there. He says a bunch of stuff in 22 to, uh, to, to 31, and then they shut him down. The mission of the church moves forward when the people of God take what they know and believe about him, and they move it from the category of the stuff that they believe to the stuff that they act on. And they move it from the stuff that they believe to the stuff that they act on. And that means that, that rather than seeking and pursuing perfect circumstances so often, like I want uh, somebody brought up this morning in Sunday school how, how, how we, we fail to share because we're intimidated. Or we don't feel like we're enough. You know, we're not, we're not ready to share the gospel and we miss that opportunity. We need, we need as a community to say we are provoked by the fact that marriages and families and the educational system is are, are they're failing they're falling apart our culture is like riding off the edge of a cliff everything's falling apart and the answer's not this program that program swap the president new president different this different that new mayor governor whatever we need to recover the gospel and repent of our idolatry return and seek the lord 
We want to change the moral fiber of this country. We need to change hearts and minds. We don't like the people in power or what they do. We need to pray for them that their hearts and minds would be changed. Because I'll be honest, I liked different presidents, but I didn't get the mileage out of them I was expecting because their hearts aren't right. And you know what? My heart's not right because what I'm doing is fixated and focused on them changing. And meanwhile, I'm not focused on what's going on in my backyard. We all need to repent and trust and change and transform our hearts. If we're provoked about the fact that our children in America are going astray, we need to be faithful and work hard at children's ministry. I don't know if you guys noticed, if you've got little kids, they're back in here this morning, a bunch of them, because we don't have enough volunteers. Got a group of people in our church who, who, who said, you know what? We want to make sure that our teenagers, that they don't just fall into that yawning chasm that exists after high school. And so they, they have battled to, to, to get enough volunteers to put a youth ministry together. And they're going to work hard, excited about all the stuff they've got planned for this year. There are people who are concerned that, that, are, that, that, that the church is not focused on reaching out. And we may say formally that we're, we believe that our, our mission is to take the gospel to the nations, but somebody's got to own and pilot the ministry in that direction. We need to be provoked beyond thinking that things are just good ideas and actually do them. Does that make, does that make sense? We, we, can't, we can't just say yes all that needs to happen and then expect somebody else to do it. That's the American trap, brothers and sisters. That we think, oh, somebody's going to come along with a, a beverage cart at some point, right? Because that's what our culture's like. Someone will take care of it. It's not the way it works spiritually. Let me give Jesus the last word and then I'm going to pray. If you're here this morning, right, and you've, you've heard all this talk, let me, let me tell you, most of this is like, guilt-free zone for you the last like five minutes right about about the church but all the stuff about being a consumer and not worshiping god as he is that needs to be repented of we need to we need to change our mind and heart we need to say god i've not worshiped you in the way that you deserve and i put my faith and trust in you and we need to put our faith and trust in christ and the fact that when he went to the cross he took our sin upon himself that he would give us his righteousness that we could be saved. But if you're part of the church and you're already in and you're like, well, what do I do? How do we, how do we fix it? The answer, the truth is that you are the answer to the problems and the pressing need. God is raising you up. Look at what it says in Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked, he was moved, and then he spoke. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I can just imagine the disciples are like, yes, we get to pray that God sends laborers, right? That's cool. Let's all pray that God will send laborers. Bow your head. Our Father, who art in heaven, send laborers. And then they're like, amen. You know what Jesus says? Go. 
and he sends them out. They're the answer. Where are we going to get workers for children's ministry? Y'all are going to be like, how do we help? Mike's going to be like, we need more volunteers for youth ministry. Elliot Moore, who's going to be focusing on small groups, is like, we need more small group leaders. Where are we going to get them? The small group leader store. <laughs> you know, we order them from Amazon. They come in a package. We've got Prime here at the church, so they come within two days. You know, this is, we have to raise them up. Where do we get disciples and evangelists from? We've got to say we're going to do it. We've got to avoid doing what we do as Americans so often. Saying someone's going to do it because that's their job. The spirit that's in you is the same spirit that was in the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham and Martin Luther and all the other people who've done crazy, awesome, dynamic things for God. You have the same spirit because you have the same God. And he lives and works today. You pray with me as we close. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to preach to my brothers and sisters, Lord. And I pray that you would take away anything that's not helpful. But Lord, I believe it is urgent. And I believe you believe it's urgent that, that, that we do not consume idols, but that we see you as you are and we respond in the way that we ought. Father, you have been gracious and merciful to us. I pray that as we, as we close in song, Lord, that we would respond to you and that we would sing of the greatness and the goodness of the salvation that you've brought into our lives. Lord, though not a single good thing dwells in us, we are, we are totally depraved, though we might not be utterly depraved, given over to every single evil device. We, we, we have nothing good in us that you've not put in us. May we respond to that with joy and delight. Father, may, may we give to the ministries of the church, trusting that you are going to shepherd the funds. May we invest, volunteering our time, trusting that another six or seven hours on Facebook will go to waste. But three or four hours faithfully invested in the work of ministry a week will reap eternal dividends. May we speak and pray and love and move in the way that you call us to, Lord, because all that's done for you will last and everything else will burn up. We thank you, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. This is your church that you work through, and I pray that we would be encouraged and fired up and that we would go and do that work, Lord. I thank you. We pray in the precious and sweet name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen.